Tell me, what can you teach me? Table manners, for one thing. This is a plate. It contains food. This is a knife. It cuts the food. This is a glass. Leave it, me! Like it or not, you're going to learn what you've been ordered to learn. Bridge to all decks. Welcome aboard Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Nance. And I'm Steve Morrison. I can't decide whether or not I should have studied Greek mythology or maybe Shakespeare to prepare for this episode. But either way, I'm very, very excited to be here. I'm very, very excited as well to talk about an episode that I've always liked, but one that I haven't not I have not watched in a long time. I mean, like when I think about the episodes that I keep going back to, uh, they're episodes that I love, and I love this one. And I just it's been many, many years, but we sure do have a lot to talk about with Alan of Troyus, and we have a lot to talk about because we have a very, 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 very special guest. He is a noted Star Trek author editor, archivist, host, consultant, and producer. He has been a fixture at Star Trek conventions for decades, and he still looks really, really young. I'm so jealous. He has been a columnist for many official Star Trek magazines over the years. He is the author of the must-have book, Star Trek The Next Generation Companion, which is right on my bookshelf next to the Star Trek Compendium written by Alan Asherman. Those two books are right next to each other as they should be. He is the host of the Trek Files podcast for Roddenberry Entertainment, and he is an award winner from the Future Society of Central Oklahoma for their speculative fiction Hall of Fame, and he is the the producer, writer, and director of the upcoming documentary that I cannot wait to see because I know a whole lot of history about this, The Con of Wrath. Welcome aboard Enterprise Incidents, Larry Nemechek. Well, Scott and Steve, it's uh, this is amazing. I'm going to say you and a lot of other people are waiting on that. It's a little behind schedule, but we're going to get the con of wrath done. But this is amazing. When you you first told me you were going to do this show, and I said, fine, just make it different, which is what I always said, that I wouldn't do a podcast unless I could find something different. Because there's so many good ones out here, yeah. but I just didn't want to just throw one more on the pile. Well, you know, one question that I've always had for you, Larry, and I can't believe I've never actually asked you this question, Uh but what was the Star Trek episode that fired your phasers? You know, this is fuzzy because I I always had this story where I credit my ninth grade science teacher who was aghast that I wasn't watching Star Trek after school. And she basically, it was the end of something else, but she I remember her saying, oh, Larry, don't tell me you don't watch Star Trek. (laughs) <laughs> and I went home and for some reason, my brain, it was on Saturday morning, you know, the animateds were on Saturday and I watched them first to see if I would like it enough to, I have this vague memory cause I didn't run the TV. My big brother did. And I remember lost in space being on when I was like a little kid. Uh, but I remember this show about a guy with pointed ears. that was also a space show. And that's all I knew when it was on and I was a kid, but I remember flipping channels when we used to flip channels uh, and I at one point came across, and now I know what it was, just for a minute, it was Kirk and Spock coming down a corridor, and then they would cut to the floaty, glowy ball of energy. It was oh. the, it was the, yeah, from, from, um, Day of the Dove. From Day of the Dove. And, but I didn't, I didn't watch it. I just went, oh, that must be that show with the guy with the pointed ears. And I just kept flipping. But years later... Oh. She said that, but I could, you know, I can remember that specific moment. I could, and it, it totally identifies what it was. 
but it wasn't like one specific show. I think it was watching the shows that, cause this is me. It was watching them day by day by day. And then after a while, it was just the idea that the universe was so intact. It was so continuous. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you're a kid, I was, well, like in junior high, but you know, the plots and the, and the gee whiz and the geekiness and the optimism kind of grab you in. But I would talk, I had one or two friends at school and we would talk about it a little bit. It would come up, but it wasn't like this thunderclap. It was a slow burn. And it was like when I'd be on vacation and I found the making of Star Trek book. And I was like, uh, oh my God, here's a whole book about Star Trek. And I read that. And then they were like reinforcing each other with the shows. And you would notice things on a slow burn long, because you could what? Five days a week, you went through a, a run in three months, and then they would start over. And it was like the second or third time, I'm like, wait a minute, why is Uhura wearing a gold dress twice and then she's not? Or yeah. why is Scotty's hair changing? Or like, why did Kirk's green wraparound? Ch- I mean, like, I'm noticing that stuff and little thing, you know. That's one of the symptoms yeah. that you're one of us, you know. Well, <laughs> yeah. The other thing was, when I was, after I bought the making of, I was at a bookstore and I and I saw that I could get David Gerald's uh, The World of Star Trek. Right. And maybe a photo novel. Yes, and the photo something novel. Else. Yes, the photo. But I, bought, I remember I bought three things at once in a B. Dalton's or something at the mall. And I will never forget. So I'm getting them on my own money. And the, the, the bookseller, the clerk, the clerk goes, oh, yeah, we always try to keep all of our titles, our Star Trek stuff in for all you Trekkies out there. And I was like, oh, is, is that what I am now? Okay. Okay. <laughs> But I mean, like I have these memories of my friend Dean, who who uh, we didn't we weren't sci-fi geeks together, but he took me to what passed for a comic book nostalgia shop in Norman, and I walk in and at the same time it was the giant poster book with the McCoy full color shot with inside about all of his medical props, and it was the old Trek magazine, the semi-pro slick one that the guys in that Walter G B Love and Walter Irwin did. And it had a, a color picture of McCoy. There were like two color picture McCoys that looked gorgeous. And he's probably in his in his smock or dress uniform. And one article about close-ups of the medical props that probably Doug wrote back in the day. Doug Drexler, and yeah. I, yeah, Doug Drexler. And I just was like, ah, where? why did I just, you know, it was like issue six. And I remember finding Starlog number one on vacation. And then I found them, that visit I found like starting with number six. So it was like this. It was like this slow burn of a lot of things. It wasn't like I was watching the show one day and went, oh, I've got to do that. And then at some point I'd start taking notes because you couldn't record and you couldn't do anything unless you had a Polaroid off the TV screen. I didn't have that. So it was like, take notes as stuff went by. So yeah, it was a, <laughs> it was a slow addiction. It was, well, a- <laughs> you're, you're definitely in, in great company. And as we get into a land of choice, Steve Morris, how do you feel about a land of choice? How has it sort of like resonated with you over these years? So this one, I don't think was ever really one of my favorites. I think even, and maybe it was growing up in a very, you know, Marin County Bay area, liberal (laughs) upbringing that the treatment of her always kind of, even as a kid rubbed me the wrong way a little bit. And so I always had mixed their things in it. I really liked and things I didn't like so much. And then, watching it as adult it continues to change and evolve in my perspective of this show so i'm i'm really looking forward to talking about it absolutely larry how about you like what are your feelings just a short like sort of bullet point kind of feeling yeah. that you've had about alana troyes over these years it was it was not one that i had a problem with it was just kind of in the vast middle it wasn't a right. favorite at all 
And even watching it now, when I watched it just for this, again, I was thinking oh, how much you. it felt. <laughs> oh, sure. Oh, come on. Are you kidding? I, I had to be up on my toes. Because it had, like you said, it's been a long time since I put any attention on Alana Troyes. But it really struck me now with all these years of, of absorbing what we know now, how it still, you know, there was that time in third season before Bob Justman burned out and quit. I mean, Fred Freiberger was running the show and Gene had stepped back. But there was like, there's a break in the third season where before, you know, Bob Justman quits. And it's like everybody kind of slowly gives up. But it still has a second season feel to it. Agreed. Like there's still some care and depth and detail. And it just feels like the caring of shooting and the shots and setting things up is still, you know, the budget cuts and the depression, the inevitability of this is they're going to beat us in a submission. It doesn't feel like it's quite got there yet. And you you bring up a great point because in terms of its production order, the beginning of season three actually felt like an extension of season two. Mm -hmm. For one thing, you have an episode like the one we're talking about today. Not only was it written by John Meredith Lucas, but he directed it too. So you're talking about the showrunner from the latter part of season two, who also wrote The Changeling, who directed The Alternate Mm -hmm. Computer, and... And, you know, the first few episodes they shot for season three were actually really good. And Alana Troyes has it all. I was surprised during this rewatch, Steve, how much this episode has with action and suspense, Mm -hmm. jeopardy to the enterprise. It has heart. It has humor and definitely a lot of romance. And when I was a kid, you know, the suggestive romance, which was more than suggestive between Kirk and Alana, was like, pretty high but it's a bottle show and like stevie said it's a cross between helena troy and the taming of the shrew and anthony and cleopatra and uh, my fair lady it definitely <laughs> borrows a lot of elements of journey to babel but it makes it feel fresh uh the first time we are seeing the klingon battle cruiser at mm-hmm. least in production because right. the enterprise incident air first you know it's like um the first time you see the decent the klingon battle cruiser it's romulan which yeah using klingon yeah. design which makes no sense <laughs> but when you watch it in production order it makes a lot of sense and you know this episode aired on december 20th 1968 it was the 68th episode to air so it aired deep into the third season but it was actually the 58th episode to film the second episode to film mm-hmm. for season three between May 31st and June 10th, 1968. So it, it was filmed over seven days. And Steve, I know that when we get into what was going on in the world during that week, we're going to have a lot to talk about with that. Mm-hmm. But the total cost of this episode was $180,483. So it's about $2,000 over budget. The score Composed by Fred Steiner, it was his 11th score, and the score was recorded on July 12th, 1968. So this all started as a story idea from Gene Roddenberry as a, as a script for season two, and then uh, John Meredith Lucas did his outline, Fred Freiberger revised it, Lucas came in and did a second draft teleplay, Arthur Singer, the new story consultant, rewrote it, Freiberger did a script polish dated May 27th. And that brings us to, to the uh, pre-production on a land of Troyes. So uh, Scott, as you said, there was a lot going on in the world that week. And mm. well, you know, one thing we, you know, we have to remember is that just a week ago in our previous episode, we talked about the fact that Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated. His 
death is announced in a very famous speech by Robert Kennedy at a campaign event and that you can listen to the audio. It's a very powerful, very brief and moving moment. And now we're moving into the week of, you know, May 31st through June 10th. The first thing, and this is not an important story, but it resonates so much with what's happening today, which is that on June 1st, Austria became the first European nation to purchase natural gas from the Soviet Union. Mm. And that is something, a political and economic decision that is critical to world events going on right now with what's happening in Ukraine. On June 3rd, you know, we talked about the attempt, uh, the, the assassination of Martin Luther King. There was an attempted assassination on Andy Warhol. Valerie Solanas attempted to kill him outside of the factory on June 3rd. Uh, on June 4th, the S&P 500 closed over 100 for the first time in history. Oh, Today it closed well over 4,000. So is it up uh, or down? <laughs> it's pretty far up. I think if you had invested just in a nice index fund in the S&P in 1968, you'd have done pretty good. Pretty good. And let it yeah. sit. Don't touch <laughs> it. Just, don't touch it. Uh, and, and of course, this is now June 4th. It is uh, the day of the California primary, which is strange because today is the day, as we're recording this, of the primary in the state of California. And unsurprisingly, Robert Kennedy defeated Eugene McCarthy of Minnesota to win the California primary. He's at the Ambassador Hotel. And I want to bring up another story we talked about on Enterprise Incidents way back when we discussed the Galileo 7 on September 24th, 1966. We told the story of a jockey riding a horse who was thrown from his horse, got a head injury, and people talked about the fact that he became paranoid angry and violent after that accident. And that man is in the basement of the Ambassador Hotel. He is in the kitchen and as Robert Kennedy, after winning the primary, goes down through there, that man, Sirhan Sirhan, shoots Robert Kennedy mm. in the head, injures five other people. And after many hours of surgery, Kennedy died having never regained consciousness. You know, on June 4, on June 5th, 1968, that was the fourth day of filming on A Line of Choice. Yeah. So many of the cast members and crew members didn't find out that Kennedy was shot until they got to the set. And Larry, I believe that our, our guest you know, actress on A Line of Troyes, she was very, very much a big supporter of, of Bobby Kennedy. And she was in complete shock when she heard the news. And she has to film all these scenes including, uh, you know, the scene where Alain throws a knife at Kirk. <laughs> this is the kind of drilling down that I, that I love, the way you guys are doing it, because it's, we do it in small doses on the truck files, but it was a tumultuous, all of 1968 was crazy. Now, on the other hand, we, we talk about this week they're filming. By the time it airs in December, the one thing that kind of tried to redeem 1968 was Apollo 8 getting oh, to the moon and giving everybody mm -hmm. a chance to breathe a little. I mean, it was almost like a script. Yeah. And, you know, the famous shot of Earthrise and the and reading and, and reading from uh, Genesis. at the But that's when it aired. So it's almost like this episode kind of, you know, bookmarks. Yeah. Uh, bookends the whole year. Time and maybe a little calmer time. But. No, it was uh, Bobby. We say, oh, he won the California primary. The thing was, he beat Eugene McCarthy, who started off trying to be the anti-war candidate to Johnson. And by this time, LBJ had given it up that there was so much anti-Johnson sentiment. He didn't want to split the party. 
and he'd already announced <laughs> uh, delaying the Smothers Brothers, I think, because I've got a recording <laughs> of it somewhere. But he did. He went on and shocked everybody and said he would not seek reelection, which he could because he hadn't he'd served enough of a short term after Kennedy's right. assassination that he was still eligible to have fo another four year term. And he said oh. he wouldn't, which threw it wide open. And who would do it? And here's Bobby Kennedy kind of coming out of nowhere and doing this last minute surge. And in those days, it wasn't so much about delegates and primaries. It was the convention was really going to choose somebody. And the fact that he was shot and killed that night, right when he was having all the momentum and everybody expected him to take California and the other states he'd won and wind up having the nomination. Right. Well, right. And, you know. and, and, to, and of course, we never know what, what could have happened in history, but there's a lot of evidence that if the election was held at least at that moment, the, 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 the main election, that Kennedy would have beaten Nixon. Oh, yes. That he would have probably been the next president of the United States, which means the entire history of the world is different. Talk about a what-if moment for sci-fi writers to go back. Yeah. No they love to go back to the JFK assassination. But yeah, because there were so many people that, that – and, and Bobby Kennedy, not to get off on this too long, but he had been such a – you know, an FBI uh, law and order guy going after organized crime and whatever. Yeah. He, he was such a straight arrow, but he really kind of bloomed, especially after his brother was killed. And he really sat down and went out and looked at the people. And he really was a man of the people. And people responded to that, as I'm sure France Nguyen, with her Asian heritage background and working in the States, and many, many people saw Bobby as somebody who was, you know, the what Star Trek was all about, the diversity, exactly, exactly, which was still a new thing in the 60s. And um, the fact that we wound up with just kind of, you know, yay, Humphrey, but we wound yeah. up with more on the shelf, off the shelf standard candidates. And that and people wanted to see maybe his brother's legacy fulfilled through Bobby was part of that emotion, too. Sure. Which sure. was why the double assassination was even was even more terrible on people's psyche. It's amazing. We limped out of 1968 at all. It, I mean, it's great. 1968 yeah. was a crazy year. So he was shot well, on June 5th, but he actually died 25 hours later on June 6th. And on the day that uh, Bobby Kennedy was pronounced dead, you know, on Star, the set of Star Trek, they were filming on stage nine. They filmed the love scenes between Kirk and Alan. Yeah. Then they cr crushed it, you know? <laughs> well, and this is the thing, you know, you there, there's the expression, the show must go on. That's not a joke, actually. There are a lot, you know, getting up onto a stage on in front of a camera and having to play all sorts of things when you're just absolutely wrecked inside. It's not easy, but the show actually must go on most of the time. And so you go and do your job. And you peg Star Trek, especially because we study there's much of a fan base where we do this, but we study these episodes that for good and bad, like after 9-11, during the during the L.A. riots in the early 90s. The Rodney King riots and, and after. I mean, there are moments when uh, it, I've seen Bob Justman talk about they wondered about filming at Desilu during the um, uh, the watch Watts. riots. The watch yeah. Riots. yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's moments when you can't. Yes. You want to act from where you are and get the show, get the you know, or it's a personal tragedy. Like when when Shatner talked about his dad dying and yeah, they, yeah. He, yeah, they, the he said, no, 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 I'll finish out the day. Unbelievable. And, you know. All of that kind of thing. So it's personal or it's social. It's yeah, you 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 put on the costume, put on the makeup, and get out there and go. And people try to give cut you some, but when it's everybody going through the same upheaval, it's it's uh, it's amazing. So and you know, and then you get some distance. You get ten or twenty or thirty years, and you look back, and maybe you detect a little bit of a tone 
sure. shift. It's like Enterprise was all filmed. The first season was mostly filmed before 9-11, but right. it aired after. And, and afterwards. It, you know, that tone kind of caught up in succeeding years. But uh, but yeah, anyway, it's a good it's a good moment to remember this is all going on in six. So so France Nguyen being a supporter of Bobby Kennedy doesn't surprise me at all, because a lot of younger people, a lot of people in entertainment um, were of that same mindset. And and uh, the more global your outlook was, I'm sure the more they were in line with uh, with Bobby, with RFK. Well, as I say, the show must go on. So, so I, I think we have to shoulder that burden as well and move right into the show. We open in the teaser. We hear we're in this diplomatic mission. And already, right at the beginning, you get the sense that Kirk is not all that pleased about this particular one. Some desk-bound Starfleet bureaucrats cut these cloak and dagger orders. Aye, but why the secrecy? And we hear that it's a border area, that we're near the Klingons. I, I should say that we're talking about these two planets, Troyes and Alas, and we get a hail from Alas. They're ready to be aboard, and they demand an explanation for the delay. And Kirk is already going, demand? What delay? All right, beam of aboard. <laughs> and we hear two other things. One is we hear that scientists who conducted an investigation on Alas describe them as vicious and arrogant. And then McCoy, always a little bit lascivious, <laughs> says... Now, the women, they're supposed to be something very special. They're supposed to have a kind of a subtle, mystical power that drives men wild. I, I want to say he's being sarcastic there because it's somewhere between the subject matter and just the fact that it's one more way to, to get at Spock, right? Yep, to, get un, sure. you know, to get under his skin a little bit. <laughs> what, what struck me about rewatching this again was I had forgotten that the whole thing was couched as a top secret mission. Right. Which I what so what's the story? But is that to cut them off from external communication? Or are they totally was that to meant to heighten the sense of they're really on their own? That what we we just did enterprise. It's not enterprise incidents level. Excuse me. Uh, it's not the enterprise <laughs> incidents level. <laughs> Let me correct that. It's yeah, not yeah. quite up to that Pueblo incident level, but it still it threw me to rewatch again and realize that they were making such a big deal about it being a secret mission again. Like I, Enterprise yeah. has turned into, uh, you know, the covert ship of the year or something here. <laughs> I, I frankly think the secret mission thing was a thing they threw on to add tension because it doesn't really make any sense that the marriage between the leaders of two planets, this is not a secret, you know. Do they this have subspace like some... radio? Then it's not going to be much of a secret. By the way, what I'm reminded of with McCoy and his little moment there is Wolf in the Fold, where it's, you know, I know a place where the women are so... I know the place. Yes, I know the place. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we're in the transporter room, and we beam over these three huge guys who immediately draw their weapons. And we also meet Ambassador Petri from Troyes. Okay, Ambassador Petri is played by Jay Robinson, who on TV was in shows like Bewitched, Mannix, The Waltons... Buck Rogers in the 25th century. On film, he had a very storied career in earlier films like The Robe. He was in the Warren Beatty classic Shampoo. He was in Big Top Pee Wee and Bram Stoker's Dracula. But you know where I remember, where I remember Jay Robinson? From Sid and Marty Croft's Dr. Shrinker. Dr. Shrinker. <laughs> remember Dr. Shrinker? Of course. Is, is he Dr. Shrinker? Yes, he's Dr. Shrinker. Uh, wow. I, <laughs> you guys have me on this one, so okay. I don't... <laughs> <laughs> and also you meet Crichton, 
who's played by Tony Young, who on TV was the gunslinger. He was an iron horse, the Virginian and Mannix. And on film, he was in films like He Rides Tall and Taggart. There's obviously a reaction, A, right away to the fact that these guys have their weapons out. Yep. And they have a reaction to the fact that there's a Trojan on board. And they say, I must know that all is secure before the Dolman is brought on board. But the devil's a Dolman. <laughs> this ship is secure. And we're prepared for any hostile acts. What I like about the way Shatner delivers that line is that the we're prepared for any hostile acts isn't just about Troyans or protecting the Dolman. It's very clearly directed at the dude that's got his weapon drawn on his transporter platform. Yeah, and the other thing about that, too, is that Kirk has already been down this road having delegates aboard the Enterprise and transferring them from one ship to from one planet to another in Journey to Babel. There's a tiny element to me, aside from Journey to Babel, now that I'm thinking about this, is there's not a uh, there's not a straw dog like Niles Barris, but there's a little bit of like we're escorting. He gets into it eventually. We're escorting a bride to a wedding. Like, what's the big? It's almost like we're taking wheat to Sherman's planet. What's the big deal? <laughs> what's the big? Right. And here's Klingons coming in to complicate things. Like, That's really? A good we're, point. Yeah, we're escort duty here, guys. Really? Now he doesn't. Again, he doesn't have a Niles Barris to push back on from you know the federation whoever's made this a top secret thing but he instantly petri cups close yeah yeah <laughs> yes but, yeah petri is kind of like the stand-in but it's like yeah. he's been sucked into the klingons complicating something that should be simple and now it's it's got that dual level of he's got the local drama but he's got as, as they point out to him oh yes but your superiors won't be happy if you screw this up which is what happened with you know barris that's the a that's a great point and b i think you immediately see Kirk not being really into this particular gig and not respecting mm-hmm. it because in the next mm-hmm. moment we say energize and all the guys from a loss, they kneel. And then a moment later, ambassador Petri kneels and then Kirk and his guys, they stay standing. And they here's stay the standing. Th- and here's the first thing I'll say about this is that throughout the history of negotiating with other cultures, you find out about the other culture before you meet them. I mean, you, know, you go back a thousand years and they're finding out, oh, when you're in the presence of this person, this is their traditions, this is what they do. Kirk, they know nothing. And they're being immediately disrespectful without even know they know nothing at this moment. And so so then there is the transporter, and there on the transporter platform, we get our first glimpse of the dolman. A long, lingering, panning glimpse. Yeah, well, for, okay, so, so there's a couple things. First, Steve, you make a, an excellent point. It always struck me that, that Kirk and Spock and McCoy and Scotty were being disrespectful. And, and the point you make about learning about the cultures before you really in a, you know, get into some kind of uh, uh, interaction with them, look at the way McCoy knew so much about the Capellans Exactly. Back in Friday's child, like he's like, yep. you know, don't don't uh, don't disrespect them. We we come with open hearts and hands like he knew it. And they went into this ill informed showing disrespect. And what I like about the way that the Domain of Alas beams aboard the Enterprise, like it's like a slow build. You hear the transporter and then you see her slowly beam aboard. And there's that pan from bottom to top. And then that shot of her standing on the transporter platform with that gorgeous wardrobe designed by Bill Tice. So Alain, the Domen of Alas, played by France Noyen, who we mentioned already, she is born of Vietnamese and French ancestry. And what's interesting, I didn't know until I was doing my homework on it, she was previously married to Robert Culp, 
who is the star of Mm. I Spy, which Mm -hmm. was running around the same time as Star Trek, and also, of course, the greatest American hero. She is a 1959 Golden Globe nominee, most promising newcomer for South Pacific. She co-starred with William Shatner in the late 50s on Broadway in the world of Susie Wong. On mm. TV, she was on Gunsmoke, I Spy, Hawaii Five O, Saint Elsewhere, Knots Landing. On film, she was in Satan Never Sleeps, A Girl Named Tamiko, Battle for the Planet of the Apes, and The Joy Luck Club. And yet, she is mostly remembered uh, for being the Domain of Alas in a line of choice. <laughs> I, I I always think of World of Susie Long. Second, if that was stage, and obviously there's probably no recordings, you know, whatever. But I always thought it was cool that if, if there's anything to a jumpstart chemistry between the two of them in this episode, it's how many how many shows, how many nights did they play together opposite about each other? About a year. Play. They played yeah. together for about a year. Sure. So that was Even crazy. This was... They had somebody come in built in chemistry like that. For sure. That definitely helps. <laughs> or they might have hated each other. <laughs> you know, who knows? <laughs> Being on a show with someone for a year sometimes isn't the best thing in the world. Um, <laughs> it could be, um, yeah. But after she appears, Kirk and his uh, and his crew reluctantly, very clearly reluctantly, I think, do kneel. And this is one of the other things is like both them and Ambassador Petrie are not good at hiding their feelings or their disdain for the people from Elas. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's for sure. But that is the end. That is the end of our teaser. The title, A Land of Troyes, was originally titled back in, you know, the uh, late 66 when Roddenberry came up with the idea. Uh, it was called Helen of Troyes. And mm. uh, they, they, it was definitely on the nose. So it was Fred Freiberger who suggested the name change. Uh, and then it, came, it became more alien like for A Land of Troyes. You rule this ship? I am the first officer. This is Captain James Kirk. And then Petri comes in and tries to do his ambassador stuff. He very clearly does not like his job. Right. You know, he doesn't like her either, which isn't really very good for an ambassador. You know, ambassadors <laughs> should be able to kind of hold their feelings in check a little bit. Ambassador, if I might speak to you. You have not been dismissed. May I have your permission to go? You are now dismissed. And by the way, Steve, that is the last time Kirk is going to ask for any kind of permission yeah. from the domain of the last. Now, now I, I'm curious, Larry. So in, in season two, during the Gene Kuhn uh, period, that mm. peak period of, uh, of the original series, obviously there was a lot of humor, especially in episodes like The Tribbles and I Mud and A Piece of the Action. Now, when they got to season three and Roddenberry briefly took control of the show again, he's like, no humor. That's not, I don't want any, any, any chumming around on the enterprise and stuff like that. But don't you think that Shatner is tapping into his, his comedy for this episode a little bit? Well, you have to, if it's going to be, I mean, I think it was great when it started off as Gene's idea, uh, Helena Troy. And it's okay. I, it's like, what is it? Some old, uh, you know, um, fifties B movie, uh, you know, yeah. like George, Re- you know, George Rhodes or whatever reason. Um, but the uh, making it making it a taming of the shrew that level because taming of the shrew is a comedy and it's a comedy yeah. of you know it's a it's a battle of the sexes kind of a comedy and mm-hmm. that if that's going to be the tone on laid onto the historical Helena Troy bit you have to have a bit of comedy and I just yeah. I just want to say that I think sometimes this whole thing about Gene pushing back against the comedy may be a little overblown. Mm-hmm. I think part of Gene Kuhn's reason for leaving was just by this time exhaustion. 
I mean, yeah. he dies, what, six, seven years later of this lung yeah, cancer. Man. He's smoking like a chimney. And he keeps writing for the show. He's on good terms. He's got a deal for several episodes as Lee Cronin, and he can't let you. To me, it's amazing how they think that they're fooling Universal. <laughs> yeah. He has an exclusive contract at Universal. Uh, so he's going to write these episodes as Lee Cronin and no one's going to find out, which is hysterical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not yeah. in the internet age. But uh, anyway, I just want to say that because this is episode is obviously, if you're going to call it Taming of the Shrew, um, you've got to have that kind of byplay. and You've got to sure. kind of have that. And even people that, I mean, over the years, we've gone back, and I hope we talk about this more, Kirk's, <laughs> the overall look of James T. Kirk as the years have gone by, thing about being a womanizer. He's totally doing his mission here. They come up with the MacGuffin of the Eurasian Tears, but he goes into this not caring. It is comic, and then he can treat her with a comic distance, and it is. It's like comic violence versus real violence. It's like comic book, you know, yeah, it's, yeah, it's uh, yeah. vamping. It's, it's banter. It's there. There's a there's a rhythm. There's a dance to it. There's definitely mm-hmm. a, a a volley between a France and Shatner. And she is a petulant child, and he's dealing with that. And he's having to be the diplomat and know there's real world stakes, as Petri keeps reminding about. Yeah, for and sure. I think it's. I've had nothing but watching this again after years. It's. I'm very respectful of how they actually in the third season, you know, at this point played all those things, and and even with modern eyes watching it, I think it. All those scenes played well until, yeah. you know, things take a turn when she starts crying. But up, up in front here, I think it's it's as and the tables turned on him and they should have had a better cultural briefing. Yes, Maybe that's why it was a top secret mission. It was so secret. We couldn't brief you in advance. Yeah, yeah. I think that right. might be part of it. Um, yeah. I, I just something just popped into my brain because of what you said, Larry, which is this idea of Kirk the womanizer. And I never put it together quite this way before, because that's the, the that's the myth. And having now gone through this show episode by later, episode. I think that's a last 10, 20 years yeah. myth. Yeah. There are certainly all sorts of women that are into Kirk. But the number of times he's actually going after women is really, really small. And what, and later on, you know, because uh, with Will Riker in Next Generation, they decide, oh, we want to give him Kirk's womanizer, that piece of this mm-hmm. personality. And so what happens with Will Riker, and it's really terrible, particularly for the first several seasons of any t- time he sees a hot woman, he's going to go after her. And it becomes this sort of weird, like kind of creepy thing. Or or Dr. Bashir later in Deep Space Nine, it's like they're trying, they're going, oh, it worked with Kirk being a womanizer, except the thing was, he never really was. That's not who Kirk is. And so they made this mistake in the later shows trying to emulate a thing that never really existed. You know? Wow. That's really, really a great point. I mean, yes. That's what got me. If you go, I mean, as we, you know, the years go by and we see the older shows and with new eyes and then another 10, 20 years later go by and you're seeing it with revised eyes. But mm-hmm. this thing about him being a quote unquote womanizer, if he was, yeah, he kissed lots of women, but how much of it was mission specific? How much of it was he was playing the secret agent, the diplomat, the what you know, or he was thrown into a situation where Edith Keeler and what and uh, and Miramani under false pretenses, loss of memory, and then um, oh, from a requiem from Methuselah, yeah, yes, yeah, which which is an episode I don't, I don't even like, so I never. I, well, I know, I know. It's to me, it's like oh, they they did that show going out the door. They yeah, were and, like almost <laughs> in the last week. Well, every, and of those. Yeah. Now, of those, Requiem from Methuselah is the only one where it's Kirk kind of going after someone. The mm-hmm. other ones are he was thrown into a situation and fell in love, you know? For sure. That's not being a womanizer. 
Right, right. But everything else we think you got the clip of him kissing somebody. It was always he's serving the mission and he's that's just yeah. one of his tools in the toolbox. Not to oops, maybe I shouldn't have said the word tool, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> that creature, Elan, is to be the wife of our ruler, to bring peace. Our two warring planets now possess the capability of mutual destruction. Some method of coexistence must be found. I think there was a pathway that they sort of almost approached going down, but then they chose not to. And that is the pathway of both of these sides are messed up with mm -hmm. Petri being messed up and Elon being messed up. And clearly from his description of her as a creature, like that's pretty harsh, pretty terrible. And, and I don't think we sh feel particularly good about ambassador Petri, but they don't really pursue it. You know what I mean? Like yeah, had they right. pursued that, I think this would have been a better episode. At least he's not trying to stab her and <laughs> he doesn't have a good squad. <laughs> yeah. Right. So Kirk's like, okay, so we're heading off to Troyes, and, and I like the ambassador says, yes, ah, but slowly captain, I will need time before we reach there. She must be taught civilized manners. And that's Petri's job. He is going to teach her manners. And the failure of this mission will be catastrophic for Federation planning. I'm not sure what that means, but it's a it's a good line that was written in. I don't know if it was Lucas or Freiberger or Singer who wrote it, but just to kind of pump up the uh, suspense mm -hmm. and the, uh, up the stakes. I, I'm cool with that because cause if you go like, well, look. India and Pakistan have had a conflict for throughout history. They're both nuclear powers. If they were to go to war, that would mess up the whole world. Well, like, that's true too. You know, economically, socially, and environmentally, it would be a really, really big deal. And they're straddling the world right there at Russia and China. I must ask you and your crew to respect or at least tolerate their arrogance. And so they're being framed as a really horrible people. That's mm -hmm. kind of how we're talking about them. Playing a course for Troyes. Mr. Sulu, impulse drive, speed factor 0 0.03 seconds. Impulse drive, Captain. Yes, that's correct, Mr. Sulu. Sublight factor 0 0.037. I wanted Sulu to turn and go, I can't go 0 0.036. And Kirk said, no, 0 0.037. That's, <laughs> that's a total side issue. Like, that was a big thing. And then, you know, Scotty comes over and says, uh, all the way on impulse. That'll take a great deal of time. You in a hurry, Mr. Scott? And I love Scotty's reaction. He's like, no. <laughs> he just like, walks away. <laughs> By the way, uh, Larry, Steve and I have repeatedly said almost episode by episode how much the performance of James Dewan and the character of, of Scotty has not gotten the credit that it deserves. Scotty is a great character. He's had some, so many great moments. Jimmy Dewan just gave a fantastic performance. And he was in more episodes of season three than he was in the first two seasons, you know, each one of the first two seasons. And I think Jimmy is awesome. Well, he is. I almost feel like the realization that D was awesome, which kind of only took a season to catch up with, and they elevated him right above the line in the opening yeah. titles. I think that was that was Jimmy as well, and but he was on a slower burn. And talk about talk about a long term arc to things. I mean, people, you know, when they're making the shows and they're looking at contracts and what days are you working and how much you getting paid a day and all that. And same thing with Michelle and, and George and then Walter. But but Jimmy, right after that, um, 
he brought, they all brought some, they were given so little to do. They did so much with what little, the little crumbs they were thrown, unless it was a spotlight show. And um, yeah, if the show had gone on another fourth season, maybe, maybe Jimmy would have been, you would have thought Jimmy would have been bumped up the way, the way D was, you know, the way I'll shows bet you in, in a, in a, in a parallel universe, when Star Trek ran for four seasons, that in season four, it said starring William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, and James Dillon as Scotty. <laughs> I certainly hope that would be the case, but I'm thinking about shows of that era, mm-hmm. you know, and you think about Perry Mason and there was Della and the detective and Perry and Warren in Berger, the, the district attorney, no one else popped up. You know what I mean? Hop Singh didn't get a bigger role on Bonanza, uh, you know, or Sheriff Cody, whatever the sheriff's name was as the seasons went on. It was pretty locked in on most of those shows. So I would hope that that's exactly what would happen, but I don't know that it would have. Uh, well, Star, I mean, Star Trek did evolve far afield from what, you know, absolutely means yes. an initial little boxy description of, I mean, not tremendously, but I think the scope, and I don't know that I really wonder sometimes when they started off, if they really realized what they were getting. I'm just thinking this top of my head just now. We talk about, oh, well, it was all, you know, it, uh, uh, the, the believability factor was baked in the cake right off the bat and all their infamous memos back and forth about, you know, Spock, Vulcan names and the ships and the fleet and all that. But I think it was this vague notion that they wanted a continuity because they were worried about doing science fiction in the 60s on TV and what a bad rep it had or no rep at all. And they wanted to he wanted to do serious, you know, the shows that I got canceled for on the lieutenant and elsewhere. I want to do serious message shows, even if we have to have the purple and the green people do it with ray guns. And I don't really know if they realized that they were going to, you know, create the industry of tech manuals and blueprints and cultural guides and cosplay. I don't know that they realized that to the extreme it was going to go because every year it went on. I mean, they themselves had to keep up with their own in-house, you know, writer's guide and Bible and all that. And I just, I wonder at the very beginning, if they had any idea, he and Dorothy had any idea what they were going to get into by this time. But that's a case of where I don't think at the beginning, they were just trying to get a show out and do stories. But this sidebar thing they just assumed was going to happen led to its whole, you know, different slice of the pie for Star Trek. Absolutely. Yep. One thing I love that happens on the bridge is as we're going on our very slow course to Troyes, we get a word that the Dolman is not happy with her quarters. And I love Uhura standing up and going, what's wrong with the quarters? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because it's her it's her quarters that she kindly gave up for it. And she is offended. Yeah, you know, she should be. <laughs> and now we cut down to those quarters and we see, I will say, Ambassador Petri doing an absolutely terrible job of pretending to be nice and the dolman is incredibly rude about the gifts of shoes and jewels and the wedding dress and it is not going well at all when kirk enters yeah petri is definitely losing his patience <laughs> but comedy uh, rule of know. three comedy rule of three dress shoes and then this of course the stones we uh, right. wind up coming back to, to you know circle oh, back that's to right but, that's true yeah that's yeah, true. yeah this is the most prized of royal jewels for your lovely neck <laughs> <laughs> but and then Kirk comes in he comes mm-hmm. in and just like he was in the transporter room he's I like that approach you took with the uh, trouble with tribbles and Niels Barris, uh, Larry. He's kind of 
kind of going there a little bit. Yeah. And he's definitely not taking this very seriously. He's not taking the Doman very seriously. And he's uh, kind of nudging back at her. And uh, that is just going to escalate, of course. My communications officer generously vacated the rooms, hoping you would find it satisfactory. I do not find them so. And I find him even less satisfactory. Must my bitterness be compounded with that ridiculous ambassador aboard your ship? How do you feel? Do you feel any sympathy for Alon? Not yet. And by the way, I, I just want to give a shout out to Lieutenant Uhura for, for being the first character in Star Trek to take advantage of the Airbnb. <laughs> 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 she's, she's like, I don't know, you can trash it all you want. I'm just going to refurnish it anyway. But uh, to answer your question, Steve, no, I don't like her at this point. I didn't uh, ask not even a little. Her. I didn't ask if you liked her. I asked if you had any sympathy for her. Okay. That, that, well, that is a great point. That is an absolutely great point because liking someone and having sympathy for them are two totally different things. And I'm still going to answer, no, I don't have sympathy for her yet. What about you, Larry? It struck me, you're you're not meant to have sympathy with her. No, you're not. I agree. Or like her at this point. But it did strike me. She has one or two lines. And again, this is my adult eyes watching this, not my 15-year-old eyes. She does have a moment where she talks about just being a pawn and she can't believe you know, like her dad or her people, her governor, the rulers, she had no power back on, you know, they threw her in the transporter (laughs) to make her do this. Yeah, that's true. But now she's got her own power and she's throwing these tantrums and she's throwing her weight around because she finally feels like she's in a place where she can. This all just rushed at me watching last night. Yeah. But she does have a line or two to try to get it across that as bitchy as she's acting here, she sees herself as a victim. She didn't ask for this. She didn't want to be, you know, it's we're celebrating Elizabeth's Jubilee. Those princesses, when, you know, her father died soon and her life at 25, she was thrown onto being on the, you know, you give up your personal life. They talk about ending the monarchy in the UK, but you give up your life to be a public person and rarely get any privacy. And that's what she's facing here. She didn't ask to be married off to some right. idiot, yeah, you're right. you know, that she didn't she's- know, hadn't met. Yeah. So so that's what I was thinking about watching it this time. I was the same as you as a kid. I didn't I wasn't thinking about this, but now I'm going like, okay, she's some kind of princess in her world or queen or someone who has lived a very privileged lifestyle within a very specific culture. Like I don't think her behavior in her culture is uh aberrant behavior. She's well, behaving warriors, how she's right. Yeah, this is how you're supposed to behave. And she is been f- being forced into a, an arranged marriage against her will with a culture that is totally alien and opposite to her. And she has been treated essentially because I could see through Petri's behavior that he hates her and is dismissive. And, and she's been treating with total disrespect. And even if she's been, she's been put in a room that's filled with Trojan stuff, they didn't think anything about her culture or what she would actually like to live in. So I actually am. So I don't like her. She's not a likable character, but I, but why, Watching this time, I was like, "Yeah, she's actually in a messed up situation." Yeah, you know, a modicum of respect you can have here for. I mean, it really is like a Athens and Sparta kind of a thing. They're the yeah. they're the Spartan warriors, and and Petri and the and the Trojans are like the snooty. Well, we're so you know we're so superior to you, um, and now you're trying to bridge that gap. What one thing that I did think about watching this episode for the first time in, I, I mean, literally, it's been it has been years. 
we're, we're only seeing and learning about the Alasian culture through mm-hmm. the experiences of our enterprise crew and their interactions with the Domend and with her guards and everything that we're hearing and seeing. So it got me thinking, like, you know, I hear your points about, about the Domen being sympathetic. And now that you put it that way, nope. yeah, I, I could totally sympathize with that a little bit. Yeah. But what it got me thinking about is like in the eyes of their culture, and Steve, we talked about this on other episodes, in the eyes of that culture, this is totally normal. And right. the way that the Klingons are depicted in the next generation Okay, not in yes, the original I series. I had the same thought, Scott. Yes, go on. Uh, of course you did, Steve Morris. <laughs> so I thought, wow, there are some very interesting similarities from what little we know about the Elasians to the way that the Klingons were depicted in Star Trek The Next Generation, especially especially when Ronald D. Moore came on board and really – really delved into the Klingon culture and made them fully realized. And yes, they are different and they have their ways, the way of the warrior, but it is their culture and it is to be respected. And I don't think that that Kirk and the enterprise crew or even just the 23rd century Federation is there yet. So first of all, that is exactly the same thought I had, Scott. And and I know I know we're going slow, so we'll have to pick up the pace a little bit. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> your your statement, Larry, about Athens and Sparta really hit with me because I suddenly went, well, what if we took like one of the most perfectly well researched, historically accurate versions of Sparta ever? Obviously, the movie Three Hundred, which is you know pristinely <laughs> accurate, and you took one of those dudes and you put him in Uhura's quarters and told him what kind of shoes he had to wear, what dress he had to wear, and what necklace he had to wear before he got married he'd probably be pretty pissed off, you know, <laughs> like he would not feel mm-hmm. that this was good. You know, that if he, if they're Spartan warriors, yeah, this is not how you should be treating them. I will never forgive the consul for putting me through distortion. There you go. There you go. And can we just say really quick, there's, there may be a culture shock going on here because I know it's original series and it was a little loosey goosey about the prime directive and, and the way the prime director was interpreted later. But here's, Oh yeah. <laughs> here's basically two. The, the whole talk also, can I just say the whole thing about going to warp and not going to warp, but we're talking about two planets in the same star system. This is like earth and Mars. Right. This is like, yeah, I thought Venus about that. Something. And so it makes sense to go at impulse. You're not supposed to be at warp because what do you, what do you smack into a planet or the star? I mean, if you go to war, sure you don't have a lot of elbow room, right? That's the whole point, unless you're pointing outward. And they're not. They're going from planet to planet. These are two planets that the whole point, it's on the radar, is because he says they have just recently, like what, they've got atomic weapons, they've got interplanetary missiles that they can reach each other across orbit. So now they're a threat to each other, like Aminiar and Vendikar. Right. And so now, oh, they've been that, that, they've been there for, what, 800 years, whatever it was? Yeah, these yeah. are two planets really. that have just reset. So if you're looking at at the Troyans, uh, no, the Elasians, if you're looking at them running around in there, and by the way, that armor that they're wearing, you know, is plastic placemats. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> if they're running around, you know, like with you know sandals and armor and all of these old, you know, these medieval Bronze Age kind of accoutrements, and and Petri and his people are a little further along, but there's. They've just recently crossed over that threshold. And why, aside from it being on the Klingon border and it's and they're ripe for Klingon interference, 
like Neural was, like some of these other underdeveloped planets that the yeah. Federation is forced to pay attention to. Um, at least the fact that they are they are aware of others. If they don't have their own warp drive, maybe they're at least aware of others because they've already been <laughs> corrupted or visited by Klingons or whatever. <laughs> so, you know, it's like it's a weird spot because they're they're obviously less developed planets. Maybe you'd think below the threshold of prime directive. But they're part uh, of the Federation. They say they say that at the beginning. They're part of the Federation. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. so obviously we've moved past the prime directive at some point recently. Um, well, I don't it's know interesting they're part of the happened. Federation, but they're not they they're at war with each other. So it's not like they're in as a joint yeah. member. But, yeah. but system, or maybe it's just within Federation. I don't know. That's a that's a another loosey goosey original series and, thing. But and it, this marriage. It, but these 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 cultures have just recently gotten onto the place where now they've got, you know, the toys they have. They've somebody gave them shotguns, not not uh, slingshots. Were you responding to my demand for better quarters? There are none better. I suggest you make do with these. You suggest? There are no more available, but if that's the only way you can get gratification, I'll arrange to have the whole room filled from floor to ceiling with breakable objects. Shatner is hilarious. <laughs> the framing of this is that she is a spoiled brat, and he treats her as a spoiled brat, and you know what? She is. I will not be humiliated. And act in a civilized fashion. I did not give you permission to leave. I didn't ask for any. So I have two completely contradictory feelings about this. Feeling number one, way to go, Kirk. He handled her great. Feeling number two, if you were going to meet a king or a queen or the pope or the president of the United States, there's a whole bunch of rules you're supposed to follow around those people. And she is used to those rules being followed. And Kirk doesn't care at all about Yeah, he doesn't respect the rules and he doesn't respect their culture. Can I just say that I thought uh, gratification... And uh, Breakaway Objects was awesome dialogue writing for 1968. Can I just mm-hmm. say that? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Please. Uh, outside, Petri is done. I wish to contact my government. I cannot fulfill my mission. It would be an insult to our ruler to bring this incorrigible monster as a ambassador. And now Kirk is trying to shut down Petri. And this is that sort of parallel thing that they sort of dance with, but don't really go into detail. There cannot be peace between us. We have deluded ourselves. Captain, when I am near them, I do not want peace. I want to kill them. You're as bad as she is. <laughs> it's not required that you like each other. Just do your job. It's a job. And this is one of the key themes of the show, which is the your desires versus your duty. Duty is a key theme to this episode. Absolutely, it is. And even Kirk uh, says that later in the episode that he has a duty even after he's been affected yep. by you-know-what. But if she won't listen to then me... make her listen, Ambassador. Use a different approach. Stop being so diplomatic. She respects strength. Go in strong. We know where this episode's going, by the way, I think. <laughs> Later on the bridge, we hear that there is a sensor ghost. Been a lot of sensor ghosts in the course of Star Trek. Yep. We've been, The Enterprise has been a sensor ghost itself in Balance of Terror, and now we have another one seeing them intermittently we don't quite know what it is and what does that sound like didn't we just uh, have that experience on journey to babel yep yep <laughs> we did <laughs> and while this is going on we hear from engineering that the elasians are down in engineering scotty does not like anybody messing with his controls <laughs> and down in engineering we see one of the red guys explaining something to ilan and she is not interested in engines she is interested in weapons 
So the that uh, mm-hmm. uh, red shirt explaining the uh, engineering to Alan is Watson, played by Victor Brandt. And I bring his name up because you'll kind of see him again as one of the space hippies in The Way to Eden. <laughs> with the ball cap. Oh. Yes, with the ball cap. <laughs> I wish you had told me that you wanted a tour of the engineering departments. Do we not have the freedom of this ship? We have granted your crew the permission not to kneel in our presence. What else do you want? I, I, I like the way that she says that. Okay, France Noy, and she's like, she's like, what? we gave your crew permission to not kneel in our presence. Like, what more do you want? <laughs> you know? Which, again, that's probably a really big deal. Yeah. Like, right. has she ever, yes. she ever given anyone permission not to kneel in her presence? She's had people kneel in her presence her entire life. This is a huge sacrifice she's made. So I, I just want to say at this point, so so France Noyan in this episode, Larry, mm. throughout the course of this episode, she goes through quite the arc. Yes. She goes from being the shrew to being someone who is very sympathetic and affectionate to a tragic figure by the end of this episode. And I was thinking, and I know I bring this episode a lot because it's one of my favorites, but there was another episode where the female, a guest star, went through a really great dramatic arc for an actor. And that's, you know, of course, Eleanor Donahue in Metamorphosis. Mm -hmm. But I think France Noyan in Atlanta Troyes doesn't get the sort of credit she should get for giving a fully realized, amazing performance where she starts off the episode one way and and goes through a remarkable transformation by the end. Watching this now of a piece, these these phases – you enjoy the comedy, the taming of the shrew comedy at the beginning. And that's, you know, and, and you can't have that sustain. You've got to have an arc. It can't be one note all the way through. And at the end, you, you get those glimmers again, where she's the pawn in this and you try to feel some sympathy. She's so strong on throwing her breakable objects, though, and stabbing ambassadors. You know, she's so strong there that it kind of overshadows that sympathetic bit. But you really get it by the end. Yeah, it almost brings to mind Perfect Mate, where Fonka Johnson is bonded to Picard through a biological, physiological, but she has to go off and do a duty. Right. But in 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 Alon's case here, in Franz Nguyen's case, you've got the beginning point. You've got the ending point. The tricky thing is in 1968 TV, how do you flip this? You know, the MacGuffin are the tears, and now you've got Kirk going from the daddy figure who's making light of all this almost – to the moony-eyed love boy, which is hard to do. It's a, it's a trope and a stereotype that Kirk has anyway, and they were aware of it then, much less as we've gone back and looked, we were just talking. I was watching the show thinking, this is such a thankless job for both of them. The whole idea that the, the plot is going to turn on her tears, okay, fine. Even though I, I winced when I was a kid at that, and I kind of do now still, that turn, not the, not the beginning spot and not the landing spot. But in the middle to make that work, I, that just that or those initial moments are so uncomfortable. And there's times I was watching it thinking, I wonder if this could have been more deftly handled. But it was it was going to have to happen. Two quick things. Thing one, I actually think The Perfect Mate is a far better executed version of this kind of a story. I, I, I like The Perfect Mate better. 20 years later? Gosh, yes. Yeah. Oh, sure. Second yeah. thing is, I think her performance is good. I think the writing is frequently worse. Yes. And it's, that's that's where the difference is. That's it's what exactly, I was trying to get to. I don't. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. The both of them are doing what they can with what they've got to work with. Well, and Larry, it's exactly it's exactly what we're going to where we're going to get to the points that you're making. Uh, uh, that's where it sort of falls short a bit. Courtesy, remember. Courtesy is not for inferiors. Here's the thought that I had. 
I actually think in a weird way, courtesy only matters towards inferiors. If you're dealing with a superior, you have to be courteous because your job is at stake. You're, you, you're in a weaker power position. Your courtesy is forced by the relative status. Being courteous towards inferiors is where you show good character. It's when you don't have to do it. If being rude to inferiors is where you show poor character, that's where it exists, you know? And, and by the way, watching people be rude to a waiter or someone who, you know, at a store or something, that is the thing that makes me angrier than almost anything else in the world. Uh, well, that's why, um, yeah, I, that's why I hate Orwell ruined the term big brother because now we all carry that around. But I just think in family situations, you know, talk about taking the high road. If a big brother or an older, you know, big sister is uh, beating up or being mean to their little their little brother, little sister who are less mature, that's that's like the ultimate. It's like you have to take the high road if you're an older sibling with your even though they drive you crazy, you've got to. Um, and then eventually the years melt away and, and you're all the same. But that's it's like it starts that this is talking about cultures as well as individuals, yeah. you're, you know, ranks or military or whatever the power structure is. And then it extends to cultures, too. And that's what, you know, supposedly Starfleet and diplomacy and the Federation are all about. But I yes, exactly. You've got to take the high road when you're the more developed for the more, more mature, more powerful. Yeah, the more powerful. Um, needless to say, the courtesy pitch does not go over well. With <laughs> Dolman, she's not having any of it. And we hear that that's that's that sensor ghost is moving closer. We head up to the bridge and we discover that it is a Klingon warship. A Klingon warship designed by Matt Jeffries, who's, mm-hmm. of course, a legend. And the as we discussed in our season three preview, there was a whole deal set up between AMT, the model maker, and Paramount, or, you know, in this case, the producers of Star Trek, in exchange for rights to the model. So AMT built the 24-inch Klingon battlecruiser model. Now, this episode aired, it was the second episode that aired during season three. And then you have the Enterprise Incident, which was the third episode that aired season three. And uh, the Romulans were using Klingon design. But the Enterprise Incident aired before A Lion of Troyes. So the first time people at home were watching Star Trek and they saw the Klingon battlecruiser, Scotty goes, that's a Klingon ship. And then Spock goes, Romulans are now using Klingon design. And people at home are like, what? So... This is why it's better to watch these episodes in production order. <laughs> but by the way, I so remember as a kid, it, it, there was some moment as a kid where I can totally remember going, I don't understand. Like, what's <laughs> yeah. <happening> here? <laughs> and I got to say, I just want to point out that when they do the big reveal of the Klingon Battlecruiser, Fred Steiner's score, this was his 11th score for Star Trek. Fred Steiner, a legend. And I just loved his theme for the Klingon Battlecruiser. His whole score in this episode is just fantastic. And say what you want about the third season, how the budget, you know, really made things not as good and they had to cut corners and they they kind of just like, you know, were on their way out the door, like with Requiem for Methuselah. But the scores for season three are outstanding and this one is included. But right when this is going on, we hear that there's a disturbance in the Dolman's quarters. Kirk heads down, gets to the corridor, tries to get in. They say, Her glory has not summoned you. Kirk is about to throw down when the door opens and Dolman says, Biden, remove that Trojan pig. Lying there on his uh, on his front with a knife in his back is Ambassador Petrie. And Kirk just like kneels down and just goes, wow. 
this day sure went to hell, didn't it? <laughs> you know, the, the ambassador's got a knife in his back. We're being trailed by a Klingon vessel. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we've got this person on the Enterprise who was like really making things difficult for me and my crew. That is the end of Act 1. In yes. Act 2, we're in sickbay. Ambassador Petrie has survived. <laughs> he is a surly patient. He's not happy. <laughs> and, and he's like basically going, Kirk, this is your fault. You made me go in there. Uh, <laughs> Ambassador, if Malaysian women are that vicious, why are men so overwhelmingly attracted to them? I mean, what magic do they possess? This is a total... I need you to give me some exposition. Yes. Major scene for chapel is what it is. Yeah. 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 A man whose flesh is once touched by the tears of a woman of Alas has his heart enslaved forever. That's a tease. (laughs) Here you put me, Captain. Here I will stay. I have nothing further to say to you. I felt more sympathy for, for Ambassador Petri than I did for the Domain of Alas. <laughs> I don't know. I don't like either of them. <laughs> well, he is the one with the knife hanging out. Yeah. By yeah, the way, right, right. I didn't realize watching it again, like, well, that's red blood out of him. I'm like, gosh, I wish that was like green so we could keep matching up. But then he was yeah, confused yeah. for the Vulcan, Romulan, whatever. But anyway, his Back- home green blood would have been. Right. Back in the Dolman's quarters, she is tearing apart a green chicken <laughs> with her hands and eating. So, Ambassador Petrie is going to recover. That is too bad. You have delivered your message. Now you may go. And Kirk, with his lips poisoned with sarcasm, says, Nothing would please me more, your glory. But your impetuous nature... Your Trojan pig was here in my quarters without any permission. So I stabbed him. Just to be Trojan is enough. The way that we see what Alan being depicted, she's she's eating with the, this like chicken, you know, mm-hmm. with her hands and just tearing off the meat from the bones. Kirk is treating her like a brat and a, like a slob, yeah. basically, judging her for, you know, not using like utensils and everything like Use that. A and it, Use a glass. And it, but yeah. guys, it made me think of the scene at the uh, dinner table in Star Trek VI when the Klingons are eating that like purple pasta with their fingers and Uhura like looks at one of the Klingons as he's eating and judges him. But yep. you know, this is his culture. And then get, then this, this Steve, this kind of goes back to that comment about how the Alasians are, are possessing and, and displaying some of the qualities that we will see developed in the Klingons. I, I think it's exactly true. And Basically, what happens is that Kirk, you know, says that now he's going to be her teacher. And she laughs and says, tell me, what can you teach me? And he says, and this is exactly what you were just talking about. Table manners, for one thing. This is a plate. It contains food. This is a knife. It cuts the food. This is a glass. Table manners are totally cultural. They're just manners. There are all sorts of places in the world that eat with their hands. That's completely normal on our, we don't have to go to an alien planet to see people eating with their hands. In fact, there are a whole bunch of places where if you went there and you handed them something in your left hand, that would be unbelievably insulting. And that's not like a small percentage of the world. That's a lot of the world. Mm-hmm. India is the second most populous nation in the world. They largely eat with their hands. And uh-huh. so like, and, and the reason I think this is important is we talk about the Dolman as 
a savage. We are civilized. She is not civilized. And these words of civilized and savage have been mm -hmm. used over and over by more powerful nations to be able to go in and do whatever the hell they want with less powerful people from Native Americans, from British imperialism. It was always about we got to civilize those savages. Guess what? That we're, you know, this idea, we, we think these ideas are about and slavery. Excuse me. Yes. yes. We, we, yeah. And we think these are ideas about being more morally, ethically, culturally evolved when a lot of them are table banners, you know? Well, well, mm -hmm. well, you know what, Steve, it's really interesting because like there is, there, there are two standout lines uh, during the scene. One is when Kirk tells Alain, it's been my experience that the prejudices people feel about each other disappear when they get to know each other. Which I think is a very, you know, Timeless. proactive. Yeah, that's that's very Star Trek-y. Yeah. But then in the same moment. Nobody's told you that you're an uncivilized savage, a vicious child in a woman's body, an arrogant monster. So I did some research and there is a book, Steve, that I think you'll find really interesting called Star Trek in History, Racing to a White Future. And racing is spelled race mm -hmm. with a dash ing. So it is about race. And this is a 1998 book written by author Daniel Bernardi. And I just want to read you an excerpt. He goes, Alana Troyes brings into play stereotypes of the Asian female, the manipulative dragon lady, and the submissive female slave. Alana is both irrational and primitive. She throws temper tantrums eats with her hands, and drinks from the bottle. Kirk tells her that line, nobody's told you that you're an uncivilized savage, blah, blah, blah. And Captain Kirk is the white knight of Star Trek who is articulating his and the Federation's moral superiority and authority over the Asian alien and her people through sexual conquest. It is only after the captain physically and sexually dominates her that he, she respects and eventually falls in love with him. Hello. Well, first of all, Scott, I'm so glad you found that passage because I think, well, and, and I think this outlines to me, one of the interesting things, and, and this is, I'm not saying this as a criticism of Star Trek, although I disagree with Kirk's behavior in a lot of this episode. Star Trek is where we were in the mid sixties, you know? Yep. The JFK, we are the we are the spirit that is going to solve the problems of the world. We are going to spread American democracy, and we have figured this stuff out, and we're on this mission to do good. And that's what's where Star Trek was in the 60s. And in the post-Vietnam world, and in the post-Watergate world, and the post-Iran-Contra you know Iran -Contra world, where we suddenly weren't feeling that good about ourselves, you get the next generation, where that's not the philosophy anymore. And I don't think that's a, it's not a criticism of the early Star Trek. It's more to me of a, this is how we were thinking then. It's and there's great things in it. And then <laughs> this is where we, what we learn as we move forward, you know. Yeah, here's our blinders. Here's our, yeah. And this is one of them, is that there is a real cultural imperialism here. And Kirk thinks he knows what's right. And she slaps him and he slaps her back. And boy, did NBC have a problem with that. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. But- okay. They had a problem with it in the scripting phases and the producers are basically like, just, just trust us, you know, the way it's filmed, the way it plays out, you'll understand. Then they watch the final episode. They're like, we'll let it go. It's an echo of, of McCoy and Elian in Friday's Child. 
for which sure. Is com- which to me yes. is comedy. That's just, that's sarcasm. It's comedy. I've seen mm-hmm. some lately. I guess some feminist speakers really upset about the fact that McCoy slaps her, but she slapped him twice. So twice. it's like, <laughs> but it's very Looney Tunes. You know, it's yeah, comedy yeah. Stick slapping. And he gets up and starts to walk away, and she throws her knife at him and just misses. And I want to say that scene. So mm-hmm. somebody, I'm sure like some kind of stump person or choreographer threw a knife and that is Shatner. That's not a stump person. Uh, like yeah. you see a knife hit the wall and William Shatner turns around. That is not some stunt double. Well, it's probably not a real knife. Right. You don't need to. You, it's probably a, a rubber knife. But my question is, was she trying to kill him? Uh, ooh, well, she did try to kill Petrie. So why should she have any more respect or sympathy towards Kirk. I think she did try to kill him. Well, here's the, here's what's part of it is that I think this is poorly written, but she is going to make a crazy turn to being attracted to Kirk very soon. Mm -hmm. That's the one reason I go, maybe she wasn't trying to kill him. Maybe this is her weird warrior queen way of showing. I like when when like (laughs) junior high kids would punch each other when they liked each other in that weird kind of twisted. Or maybe it's, it's also a way uh, of affection that Klingons have for each other. Good point. Very good point. To go back to, um, (laughs) I love his last nine. Tomorrow's lesson will be on courtesy. (laughs) Uh, down in engineering, our big guard Crichton, is sneaking around already we know something's up he pulls out some panel something pops up he's doing something and then red guy walks up sees Crichton, says what are you doing and he kills the red guy so he kills watson but don't worry he'll be back in the way to eden so what, <laughs> altered to appear so what Crichton is doing is he is sabotaging the uh, dilithium crystal circuits basically and the crystals themselves and the crystals, these little crystals, this one little panel that we see, that's driving all the Enterprise, the warp speed, the phasers, and the version of the dilithium crystal, uh, like it's a whole room that we mm-hmm. saw in the alternative factor. But I guess they, you know, oh, we don't need all this stuff. We only need a few crystals to drive the Enterprise. <laughs> Nobody thought that, like, well, what happens if these that's little the crystals? the front line do? crystal. That's like the crystal that's close right. to whatever. And then the back room was like all the reserve. Except there you or go. Something. Yeah. I like that. I like that better. <laughs> Act three, Kirk comes down to the Dolman's quarters. They won't let him in. He asks where Crichton is, and they say on business. Will you tell her, Glory, that Captain Kirk requests the honor of a visit? The Dolman has promised that I will be whipped to death if I let Captain Kirk pass through that door. Uh, he tries to force his way in. They draw they push him away, draw his weapons, and immediately get stunned because Spock is there. Spock always saves the day. <laughs> so obviously this was set up. Kirk knew this was going to happen, told Spock to be there to stun them when things got rough. Your analysis of the situation was flawless, anticipating that she would deny you admittance. However, the logic by which you arrived at your conclusion escapes me. And his response. Mr. Spock, the women on your planet are logical. That's the only planet in this galaxy that can make that claim. Dude, <laughs> 1968. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. What, what is that line um, that uh, Nomad says about women? A mass of oh. conflicting impulses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are some lines that are very, you know, have not aged well. And that's one of them. <laughs> it, it, it's funny. Something has come up on, on the, my other podcast, The Cinephiles, a bunch is 
there's a difference between having a character who is sexist and having the sh- the movie be sexist. This is an example of the whole stance of the show believes that this is funny. They mm-hmm. and, and not only believes it funny, but kind of believes it's true. That that is definitely we've hopefully moved past that particular kind of joke. But that's yeah. this is an example of why now I hear it's good. Do we have other eyes, other ears? Younger yep. generation, Mr. Scott. I hear younger people saying it's they wince watching the original series because they don't just take right. that in stride and say, oh, yeah, well, it was the 60s and it's it's jarring. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, for sure. It, it's funny that, you know, we're talking about Tammy the Shrew because that is an example of a mm-hmm. 17th century play that is really sad. I mean, there are two plays in Shakespeare that you always, if you're doing them, you got to make a choice of how you're going to do it. And one is Taming the Shrew and the other is Merchant of Venice because of the anti-Semitism. And it's like, the, the, it is what it is. That is what those plays are. And you have to kind of go, you know, I don't think we throw out Shakespeare and I don't think we throw out Star Trek, but I think you have to look at them and go, okay, that's where that was when they did that. Exactly. You know, he enters into her quarters. She immediately goes to stab him. He grabs her. The penalty is death for what you are doing. We're not on the last. We're on my starship. I command here. And she bites him, runs away, closes the door. You are warned, Captain, never to touch me again. If I touch you again, your glory, it'll be to administer an ancient Earth custom called a spanking, a form of punishment administered to spoiled brats. So... I don't know how to phrase it. Well, as he's going to leave, so she suddenly has this moment of desperation where she exits the closet and says, There's one thing you can teach me. No, no, you were right the first time. There's nothing I can teach you. There's nothing you do not know. I don't know how to make people like me. And you know what? Now that I think about it, I think you're right. I think when she threw the knife at Kirk, she did not want to kill him. I think she was already starting to feel something for him. It was a cry for she, help, as they say. Yes, it was a cry for help. And now she is literally crying for help, saying, how can I get people to like me? And this is the turning point in a lot of ways in this episode. This is where I like to call, if this was a film, I would call it the midpoint. Because there's a change in her character, and there is a moment that we're about to see that changes Kirk, that changes the relationship between them. The entire scope of the episode goes off in a different direction. And it's a great moment. And it is the moment where I was watching and I went, wow, France Noyan is really, really good. She's a terrific actor. And she really delivers a fully realized performance. So she is starting to cry. And Kirk definitely is now himself starting to feel sympathy. Like, you know, like, oh, I guess I was too hard on you. So he moves his finger in to wipe. This is such a well-directed scene by John Meredith Lucas. He goes to wipe away her tear, and the camera is right on her face. And as his finger wipes away the tear and he pulls his hand back, the look that, that the dolman gives to Kirk with a very slight smile, that's what I've been calling in this episode the gotcha moment. Like, Mm -hmm. gotcha. And it immediately starts to take effect. These tears work fast, don't they? You notice that. It's like everything else in (laughs) medicines, antidotes, everything works fast. Yeah, the medicines, the antidotes. (laughs) So, Scott, I think that was a fantastic description. Mm -hmm. I agree with everything you said. 
here's my feeling about this though. I don't believe this at all. I don't think this is earned. I don't believe, I, I believe the performances. I think it's well-directed. I think her character turn at this moment, it comes out of nowhere as mm-hmm. far as I'm concerned. I she, it, it, it wasn't like, I mean, we can say that her throwing the knife, she missed on purpose because she's kind of into him, but that's not really in the show. You know what I mean? We're not seeing her look at him or see him with other people. And we're not seeing any attraction. We're just seeing, I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. you. See that knife throw. You, think she's gone for him that right. she's going for his neck the back of his head yeah, yeah. There, there's no moment that we see any attraction until this and there's no moment that we go like i want people to like me i don't believe that from her at all we mm-hmm. haven't seen anything that shows that she has any of those feelings un- until this moment so it comes out of nowhere and, and and this is what i would like to propose they would never have done this in 1968 i think this episode would have been way better without tears is that actually have her be a cool person have her do something cool and have Kirk actually be attracted to her, you know, have classic romantic comedy where I hate you. I hate you. And then we're thrown into a situation together and now I am attracted to her and that it's not fake attraction, but real attraction. That would have been a better episode and And she would have been a better character. Mm -hmm. And that is a Steve Morris free, right? Ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, (laughs) There you go. That's why they pay me the big bucks. I was in a production of much. We were talking about 10 years true. I was in a production of much ado about nothing with Beatrice and Benedict as the battle of the Mm, sex going on. And you have this same, you have that same trope of them. It's the banter. It's like killer banter the whole way through. And then at the end, they, it's like, okay, you know, it's the, opposite, <laughs> yeah. it's the opposites attract thing. Now that's right. going to happen here. Kirk had to stay married to Miss Enterprise, but uh, yeah, I, like I said yeah. in the beginning, this, the pivot to get from A to C Weird. to B is just, it's just very 1968 and we're cutting budget and we've got to do something in the middle and have it all make sense. Yeah. And, yeah. 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 But you're right. Those tears, they work real fast and Kirk tries to fight it a little bit. And by the way, so the line, he mentioned a spanking earlier, and now that he's into her, she says, Captain, that ancient earth custom calls spanking, what is it? Now, we're into a sexy area. It's, yeah. a, it's a weird sexy area, but All right. that's an area. And guess what? Something my uh, 15-year-old self did not comprehend. <laughs> I didn't either. And, and watching this in production order and going like we've been doing on these deep dives, uh, I have to say that this is definitely the most overt sexual relationship that we've seen in any episode of the original series up to this point. Of course, we're going to see that go a little further in wink of an eye, mm-hmm. but they kiss. So here's the thing, Larry, especially for you, Uh-oh. this whole idea, this, this legend, you know, print the legend uh, that the first interracial kiss took place mm-hmm. in Plato's stepchildren mm-hmm. between Kirk and Uhura, between Shatner and Nichelle Nichols. So if France Noyan is of Vietnamese descent, doesn't that make this the first interracial kiss on TV? I have seen, there's been so much, uh, I'm just revisionism, but so many people have looked at, for one thing, we have people from around the Brits come in and say, oh no, there's, you know, British soap operas and, and, you talk about the first interracial kiss on TV, Americans yeah. saying that with our cultural blinders. So I know there are Brits that have two or three moments they come up with. People come up with it's Sammy Davis Jr. And um, I forget what singer. Yeah, um, but it was 1962 or something, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. And it's a variety show and it was unscripted. 
But this is the one that people come back to. It really says a lot about how Americans in 68 and after, when we talk about race, we're talking uh, black, white. We're talking about African-American and white Caucasian. Right. Not even, not, you know, Hispanic. No, it's mm-hmm. like, you know, and she's, a, I think it's almost sad to say it's like Asian heritage uh, cultures are so off the radar that they're not even showing up. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, when people say that, yes, because this was obviously filmed before Plato's stepchildren and the famous yep. racial kiss and whether or not you even want to take it away from Star Trek and go somewhere else, you've got this one before that one. So it's, it's almost like the whole, <laughs> you know, the stop Asian hate movement. It's like the Asian population that talks about the crimes done against them. It's almost like they're off the radar. Like they're not even in the conversation to have a grievance or, or to, to make change. And I, this is, it's a thing that like I went right. Well, you go back to people saying Lucy and Desi, well, he was Cuban, Hispanic. How many times did Lucy kiss Desi on I Love Lucy in the 50s? Amazing point, you know, for sure. It's, that's part of that. So technically, by our definitions, I think you would have to say that. But people love, we love to have it being Shatner and Nichelle Nichols. And, and we and love Shatner. it literally in black and white. And there was a little bit of controversy around it at that point. Was there any controversy around this? Nope. Not that I know of. <laughs> you know? Here's the wonders of the internet because I was just did a search. I went to Wikipedia and I was looking at interracial kisses and they mentioned Lucy and Ricky and a couple of other ones. And then they mentioned on the Ed Sullivan show in 1958, when a Canadian actor named William Shatner kissed Francie Nguyen when they were doing a piece from the world of Susie Wong on the Ed Sullivan show oh, in 58. Man. Which they would wow. do. They would bring the Broadway shows across yep. town for, yeah, they would do a scene or a song from, yes. And the other thing about, and this just shows, uh, this, would be an, this would be an entire supplemental episode, but I actually have a lot of arguments of why there is in fact no such thing as race. The, our construction of race is completely nonsensical. It's, it's, it's totally a power, bizarre. It's a power trip, right? It, yeah, it's all it's all like we've been talking about in this episode. It's all these things we've established culturally that we think are real. They are not, in fact, real. Not that they're not important. Not that they don't have power. Not that you can't be very proud of your race. And I'm not saying anything like that. But I am saying that we're constructing a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't actually make a lot of sense. Which is why in Star Trek, we talk about Vulcans, Klingons, Andorians, Tellarites, and people talk about all the races of the Federation. I try to back yeah. up all the species of the Federation. Right. You know, well, um, like there's a, there's that line in Plato's Stepchildren when Kirk says to Alexander, where I come from, race, color, uh, size, you know, makes no difference and no one has the power. Uh, that's a very Star Trek line. Mm-hmm. Uhura is trying to reach Kirk and can't reach him. It takes a little while. Finally, he does answer from the Dolman's quarters. Quick question. Did they have sex? Absolutely. A hundred percent, a thousand percent, one hundred thousand percent. Absolutely. Positively. Yes. Agreed. <laughs> the tears. Totally. It's all blame the tears. Yeah. <laughs> However, um, you notice that when he rolls over to answer the thing, he's mostly clothed and she's mostly clothed for the 1968 censors. But yes. But she is like lying on a bed behind him and he's sitting on the bed. But, and, but again, and, the way that the way that she like, you know, he's he says, oh, there's a signal coming from inside the Enterprise. And then you see her come up and put her arm around him. Right. And it's like, like, have you seen has there been a scene like that before in Star Trek up to this point? No way. Don't think so. Um, so Kirk manages to extricate himself. We go down to engineering. Scotty's kind of given a report. We've got Crichton 
captured. We find that he has some kind of transmitter, which Kirk recognizes as Klingon. We hear that this guy's neck was snapped, much like someone's neck was slapped in Journey to Babel. Yep. Captain, you must know I will tell you nothing. Our interrogation techniques are more excruciating than you are even capable of. Yes, I'm aware you're trained to resist any form of physical torture. And Kirk's like, yeah, hey, Spock, let's Vulcan nine meld this guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Crichton immediately kills himself. Uh, just like we had, you know, a, an alien kill itself on the bridge of the Enterprise. That's or, right. In, uh, That's right. In, uh, yes. Journey to Babel. Mm-hmm. Who was transmitting from inside the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. Bam! <laughs> yeah. Well, and this is like, you know, this is where Star Trek is kind of reusing ideas that you kind of wish that they had other ideas. <laughs> um, one thing I do think, by the way, well, is... Twice in 80 hours? Yeah. We, all right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I, lo- I love this plan, though, that we've sabotaged the warp engines and we're supposed to not know about them and we're going to blow up if we go to warp. I think that's a great bad guy. Plan. And our hands are clean. Yes. Our yeah. is the Klingons. Yeah. Crichton was of a noble family. He loved me and wanted to marry me. He was furious when he heard of the announcement of the wedding plans. Did she cry on him? Uh, did she cry on Crichton? On Crichton. Oh, uh, that's my, a great question. Possibly. My yeah. gut is no, but uh, but because he's he is going, he's having her killed right now. Okay, wait a minute. You know. Yeah, you're right. I'm going to mm-hmm. say no because I would think that she would cry and let her tears be touched by someone she wanted to hook. And she did not have feelings for Crichton. So right. no, she did not, she did not cry on him. It was one way. Yeah. yeah. But why speak of unimportant matters when we can speak about us? And Kirk's like, no, there's a Klingon warship out there. And she, her response is, we should welcome their help. And this is where we get into the issue of duty. An entire star system stability depends on it. We have a duty to forget what happened. Could you do that? Could you give me to another man? My orders and yours say that you belong to another man. It's really crazy, like a Lance plan, like her idea that she pitches to Kirk. Hey, how about we use Enterprise the Enterprise to destroy Troyes. <laughs> like, what is she thinking? <laughs> this whole thing of interplanetary, you know, defense and uh, diplomacy, she's new to it. So <laughs> well, I like that. Look, I'm still totally into you, but that's a messed up plan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then there's a buzzer to which on the door, which he doesn't respond to right away. She goes to kiss him just as that door opens, and there are a very judgmental looking Spock and McCoy. I got to say that it's such an awkward moment, even after seeing this episode so many times, even though it's been a while. Uh, the door opens, and I still go, Oh, man, caught red handed. <laughs> and when you've got, you got Spock and McCoy both standing in the door looking at you, like, what is it, obsession? Like, yes. when, those, when yes, the blue totally. shirts come for you and you're the captain and it's those two, it's not going to be when McCoy and Spock are united on something. It's yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't don't stand in their way. <laughs> did she cry, Jim? What? Did she cry? Did her tears touch you at any time? I love this storytelling, which is he doesn't answer the question. He looks at his hand. He's been using that hand gesture through. It's almost like eh, a little bit too much, but he totally uses that through the whole last fourth yeah. of the show. Yeah. When when the door opens and they, you know, McCoy and Spock see Kirk with a land, I was waiting for McCoy to say, what is it with you anyway? Yeah. <laughs> well, we're in trouble. 
Now listen, Jim. Petri told Christine that the Alation women have a sort of a biochemical substance in their tears. It acts like a super love potion. And according to him, it doesn't wear off. Bones, you've got to find me an antidote. And just as this is happening, and this is where the episode I think is really good, they hear that the Klingons are coming in at warp speed. All right, to head warp factor two. Captain, matter anti-matter. Belay that order. What is this guy? The antimatter pods are rigged to blow up the moment we go into warp drive. And that is the end of Act Three. What? I mean, this last act, I have to say, Act Four is just full of so much suspense. Act Four is fantastic. The whole episode, I think, is very good, but Act Four is very strong. I had forgotten what a what a little strategic battle that was. And you know what? I'll say here's one place, like a small dose of Doomsday Machine. There's a place where the CGI battle choreography helps it out. Absolutely, yeah. Mo- better than having just the 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 D seven like flying by in profile, right. <laughs> the yeah. way the original airing was. Laser crews, stand by to fire on command. Klingons are coming in. Hold your fire. And the Klingon ship passes by. They were trying to make us cut in warp drive. That way, we'd have blown ourselves up and solved their problem for them without risking war with the Federation. Very neat. And again, we have this question of why are the Klingons here? What are they interested in? I have another question, Captain. Is not the bridge the wrong place for the Dolman at a time like this? I'll be the judge. Like he snaps at Spock but catches himself. Yes, you're quite right. Thank you, Mr. Spock. Great subtle acting from Nimoy in observing this moment. Mm-hmm. And he goes to her and tells her to go to the sick bay. I want to be by your side. Your presence here is interfering with my efficiency, my ability to protect you. This is great. I really like where the episode, it, it, this, in Act 4, I agree. I think this is really working. <laughs> Would you have me wearing my wedding dress for another man and never see you again? Yes, sir. Are you happy at the prospect? He says no. <laughs> and this is when we hear from Scotty that the entire dilithium panel is completely fused. It's not usable. We can't do anything. He says, well, can't you do something? He says, not without dilithium crystals. And this is where I go, why don't they carry some spares? Like, Yeah, for sure. <laughs> we should have a couple of extra crystals lying around. I know they're expensive, but it seems like they're a big deal. Hey, love, I have to go back to the bridge. Please, you must go to the sick bay. And now Kirk's got to get it together. And I was thinking about how many times has Captain Kirk had to overcome his emotions to do his duty. Obviously the naked time in the enemy within and dagger the mind. It's really similar. He has been forced to love somebody through means that are not natural. And he has to overcome that in this side of paradise. He has to overcome the spores city on the edge of forever. He has to let the woman he loves die private little war. He's been infected by the whatever route. And he has to overcome that. Like Kirk's been messed with a lot, you know, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, this whole thing about the tears, I go back to the spores. I thought, oh, come on, come on, Jamie boy, you've overcome the spores. You can overcome a little tear or two. Come yeah. on. Violent emotions. Where are those violent emotions when you need them? <laughs> back on the bridge, the Klingon is ordering us to stand down and be boarded. Scotty, what's our energy status? 93% of impulse power, sir. We can still maneuver. Maneuver? Aye. We can wallow like a garbage scow against a warp-driven starship. A garbage scowl is what they called the Enterprise in Trouble with Trouble Tribbles, Tribbles that made Scotty start a fight. 
And now the ambassador, it's very bizarre, but he's going to make one more move for his job and says, Now that we are all about to die, I ask you once again to accept this necklace and to wear it as a token of respect for the desperate wishes of your people and mine for peace. Which makes no sense that he's doing this right now, but it's very important to the plot. Because that necklace is going to save their lives. Yep. Mm -hmm. That's all you men of other world can speak of. Duty and responsibility. I think they're kind of paying lip service to an arc where she comes to understand duty and responsibility. I don't think it's really in the script. I wish there was more of it, you know, but that's kind of what's going to happen. Kirk wants to stall for time. And in classic Kirk bluster, he says, This is Captain James Kirk of the USS Enterprise on Federation business. Our mission is peaceful, but we're not prepared to accept any interference. And then the Klingon captain appears. The Klingon commander is played by K.L. Smith. If that is indeed his real name. (laughs) Yeah, K.L. Smith. And he just says, Enterprise, prepare to be boarded or destroyed. Scotty can't help, and in comes the Dolan again, the Dolman again, with the necklace, <laughs> and we're trying to maneuver, we're trying to protect our shields, uh, we're getting hit. Getting some very peculiar energy readings. And he walks over to Elon, and he's examining the necklace. She is the source. What kind of jewels are in this? They call them radons. The necklace is supposed to bring you luck. It is of little value. They are common stones. <laughs> like common stones. Yeah, that's because, what you think. Because, <laughs> of course, these are dilithium crystals. There is so much going on in this episode. And I know that some things are underwritten. Maybe elements of of a Lance character arc are yeah. are underwritten. Maybe there's a little bit of a, of a contrived exposition dump. But overall, I got to say that John Meredith Lucas, as the writer and director of this episode, put a whole lot into it. And there is a lot of setup. But there's a lot of dialogue that pays off towards the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. And now here you have that the necklace, which is made up of stones that are worthless to them, but are very, very valuable to the Federation and the Klingons. And hence, that is why you've got this conflict now with the Klingons, because they want those crystals. Aha. Yeah. Aha. <laughs> it is deus es machina. It's just, oh, here we have the solution to our problem. It's just sitting there, but it's okay. Scotty, your estimate. We're fitting it now, sir. But we'll have to run a few tests to make sure. Tested in combat. Captain, these are crude crystals. There is no way to judge what the unusual shapes will do to the energy flow. And Kirk's having none of it. He's like, no, no, we're going to use these things. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the Klingon is coming in. What part of the shields, Captain? Negative. The sensors will pick up our power increase. The more helpless he thinks we are, the closer he'll come. As he passes, I want to cut in warp drive. Uh, they're coming in closer, they're coming in closer, and just at the last moment, we go to warp true, we fire a full spread of photon torpedoes, and the Klingons take a serious hit. Damage to Klingon number three shield, number four shield obliterated, loss of maneuver power. Later, we're in the transporter room, Elon enters. You will not beam down for the ceremony. No. I want you to have this as a personal memento. Knife. Yeah, a knife. Yeah. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Remember me. I have no choice. Nor have I. I have only responsibilities and obligations. Jerry Finnerman's cinematography at this moment, mm. like the lighting on Kirk, is very 
signature Jerry Finnerman. Yeah. He's still with us in the beginning of season three. And he, his cinematography is, mu- is as much of a character as Kirk, Spock, and McCoy in The Enterprise. What I do think is interesting is throughout all of the series up to this point, Kirk always chooses duty over love. And now the Dolman is choosing duty over love. Um, and they energize. And I like that she closes her eyes right at the moment of transport. It's a close-up on her face, and she's just about to cry, and the, the transporter beam takes her out. And that's the, that's the, the last image that we see of the Dolman of Alas. If she cries while being transported and the tears flow out through the energy, are we going to have a lot more people in love <laughs> with her? Oh, yeah. Don't cry for me, oh, my dolman. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're on the bridge. I've isolated the biochemical substance of the Elysium tears. It's a kind of an infection, and I think I've found an antidote for You're it. Too late, doctor. The captain has found his own antidote. And of course he did, because just like we have said many times throughout this podcast, Steve Morris, who is Kirk's greatest love? It's the Enterprise. It is the Enterprise going way back to the naked time. I give, she takes, no beach to walk on, never lose you, never. Kirk's greatest love is the Enterprise, and that is his cure. That's the cure that Kirk needed from the tears of a last. I know that that's what the episode is telling us, and I like Spock's line, the antidote for, to a woman of Velocis' starship. The Enterprise infected the captain long before the Dolman did. Does McCoy give him the shot anyway? He should. Oh, you think? He well, should. Because just because Kirk wants to is get written up in a medical journal, he'd better. Kirk literally just said, you know, I have no she says, remember me. He says, I have no choice. It's clearly still affecting him. And I remember at the end of Dagger of the Mind, where he'd been told that he's I don't what's her name? I forget the something about Christmas. Someone Noel. Helen That's Noel. Oh, Dr. Helen, Helen Noel. Noel. Yeah. Helen yeah, Noel. And, Helen Noel. And they say, and he's been programmed to be passionately in love with her. And at the very end of the episode, there's this moment where they say, but you're okay now. And he goes, yeah, I'm okay. But it's clear he's actually not okay, right, that yeah. he's holding it in. This is the same thing. He just said, I have no choice but to ever forget you. Spock said that the Enterprise cured him. He is not cured. He is just keeping those emotions down. I hope that McCoy gives him the damn shot, you know? Forget. 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 Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the only good life is for only one significant other at a time. Yeah. Well, I doubt seriously if there's any kind of an antidote for the Enterprise. In this particular instance, Doctor, I agree with you. So that's a coonism, and we'll take it. <laughs> yes, yes. That's what. That's another one of those. It just still feels like the second season continued. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that is the end of Elan of Troyes. And France Noyan certainly had a lot to say about Alain of Troyes, starting with her wardrobe. She said, my wardrobe for Alain was the most painful I ever wore. Every plate for her armor was glued to my skin. And after a while, the skin came off with it. Where we go through to make fantasy look real. But it must have been worth it. I am more known for my role on Star Trek than anything else I've done. I'm very grateful to have been asked to do a Star Trek. It's a timeless concept, and I feel grateful to the director, John Meredith Lucas, who wrote this wonderful script called A Land of Troyes. Speaking of John Meredith Lucas, he said, I enjoyed the love story aspect of the show, and I thought it was an interesting change of pace. You didn't get to do too many of those. You know, this is definitely one of those episodes that the things I like, I like. I like Act 4. I think the performances are good. 
there are definitely things that I go like, oh, this her transition is a little bit weak. And man, this idea of you are a savage and I am civilized and you must be, it is all just rubs me. The older I get, the more it rubs me the wrong way. And it does definitely point out a thing that I hope we're starting to learn to get past, which is just because I think this is the way you're supposed to do stuff doesn't actually mean that that makes me civilized and you not civilized. That's, that's sort of my final thoughts. Well, I, I, I agree with those thoughts, but I got to say overall, I was, I was really thrown by how strong this episode actually is. Again, due to you know, John Meredith Lucas writing and directing the episode, there's a lot going on here. Some elements have not dated well. Others have in terms of the filmmaking. I think it is a strong episode. You know, they were two for two for the first two episodes they produced for season three of the original series. And I'm glad that I rewatched this again for Enterprise Incidents because it's one where I was able to rediscover, rediscover the many strengths of it and appreciate it as a standout episode for season three. Larry Nemechek, what is your overall uh, summation for your thoughts of A Land of Choice? Well, some of the problematical, both culturally and with regards to feminism and race that we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. uh, in, in abstention without watching it over the years, those kind of grew in my mind. Uh, and now I, I too think it came across as a much stronger, a more second season era episode than a third season. Oh, it's a total loss. In my mind, it had grown into being, you know, farcical <laughs> in ways it wasn't trying to be farcical. Yeah. But watching it again, I saw all the strengths seem stronger and the weaknesses didn't seem to be as strong as I'd let them creep into my mind over the years. I think the biggest problem all, overall was the structural pivot that it has to make with her. And that's still it's just a dois machina. It's a, it's a MacGuffin there. Yeah. Not not the not the Raiden stones, but the tears. Right. And whether you could have you know, finagled that and, and, and maybe knocked that down to be a little more sophisticated, a little more nuanced probably could have happened and we've seen it like we said uh perfect mate and other things but i came away a little more respectful of the whole show overall and watching it watching the production quality they still put into it despite you know the physical production i had totally forgotten even that i knew it was uhura's quarters i didn't realize there were so many african accoutrements and art pieces Mm. in her room that are there and things on the wall and like uh, an ancient African queen or princess kind of 2D thing on the wall. And I was like, well, oh, we're gonna, we're and gonna I see wonder her quarters if Mike again. Myers did that or something. What? Yeah. We're going to see her quarters again in the Tholian web. Right, hmm. right, right. But I felt like this was showing angles and more of it that, that uh, yeah, that even more, even more than that. So good on, good on that. This is also the episode that starts off with the cut scene where they were going to show the new rec center and spock was going to be playing on the lyre again and yep. have a little mm-hmm. thing with the cast and which the the clips are out there we can't we can't do anything about the parts that are problematical now but i to me watching it again it didn't seem like the problematical bits raised as large as i was afraid they had mm-hmm. without watching mm-hmm. it and it overall came across as a little bit stronger even though there are some tropes you know star trek tropes through it but if you'd lean on it as a as a uh, taming of the shrew kind of physical body comedy with this layer of, of respectable Klingon intrigue over the top of it. It's, it can still work. It's still in my middle batch. I think there are far, far worse Star Trek episodes than this one. Well, Larry Nemechek, I I cannot thank you enough for joining us for this conversation. It was above and beyond. And uh, 
I, I just, I, where can people find you like on the internet, like your Facebook page or your Twitter handle or whatever? Well, Larry Nemechek on Twitter is good and I'm on Twitter a lot. And then otherwise all my other socials, YouTube, uh, Facebook and uh, Instagram, Larry Nemechek's Trekland is out there. And then just overall, LarryNemechek.com. And, and be sure yeah. to listen to the Trek Files, uh, your podcast for Roddenberry Entertainment, which is a fantastic podcast. Thank and, you. Thank you, you Scott. Know. I I like to think we do what you guys are doing only like in little bite-sized pieces, which is frustrating. <laughs> and it's a lot, but it's fun to dig into Gene's, Gene's files. But I do my live sure. stream Tuesdays at one on all my channels. And then I have the Portal 47, which is a backstage deep dive with uh, with with people and guests. Uh, and then and then my Trekland Treks, which is something that's just exploded the last two or three years going to locations uh, is, is either individual tours, custom made or on special events. So but that's all at my site. So I invite everybody to come over and check it out. Um, and if people want to check out Enterprise Incidents on social media, the the most action is on our Facebook page. Check us out there. You can follow us on Twitter at Enter Incidents, on Instagram at Enterprise Incidents. You can support the show by looking at the show notes and going to Anchor. There's a link right there, and you su- can subscribe to the show for as little as 99 cents a month. We think of it as a tip jar. And also, we'd love you to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, where you would definitely want to leave a review or go on YouTube. You can subscribe there, too. And leave your comments there scott how would people find you you can find me on twitter and instagram at movie mance and be sure to share enterprise incidents on your social media platforms we have a very very strong following but we really do need to get the word out about enterprise incidents so please hook us up and share enterprise incidents get the word out there because uh you know we've been getting such great reactions especially on apple podcasts where people are leaving great reviews of enterprise incidents on our facebook page which is also of course enterprise incidents we just got to get a bigger audience i know there's like 600 star trek podcasts but we really are proud of the what we are contributing so anything you can do to help get the word out would be great steve what can people listen to on the cinephiles that goes along with the line of choice? Well, I was thinking this is sort of a doomed love story, and we've covered some other doomed love stories on the cinephiles. For instance, Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless, uh, David Lean's incredibly romantic film, Brief Encounter, and one of the most moving doomed love stories I can think of, which is the Merchant and Ivory film, The Remains of the Day. And if you want to follow me, SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris on one on Instagram. Scott, where is the crew of the Enterprise going next? Well, this next episode is a really, really special, unique episode. We are going back to paradise, not this side of paradise, but the next episode of Enterprise Incidents, we are headed to the Paradise Syndrome, a beautiful, unique, powerful episode, one of the best of the third season. So please join us. For the next episode of Enterprise Incidents on the Paradise Syndrome. Until then, keep going boldly.